0: Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to
1: emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something.
0: Greetings listeners and welcome to another episode of Feelin' Film. I'm Patch and with me back after his pilgrimage from one home to another is my best friend and
1: co-host Aaron. Hello, it's nice to be here, not next to a street.
0: Yeah, I I like your duds back there from what I can see, Aaron.
1: My closet? My bedroom closet? closet, My bed? Yeah. Yeah, there might be a cat here later on. It's going to be epic.
0: Oh, I love it. I love it, man. (laughs) Well, I... I, I it sounds like you are glad to be moved in and, and very just kind of settled at this point.
1: I am. And it's nice to be back. I feel like I've been gone for a long time. Somebody actually commented or sent me a message and they were like, man, it feels like you've been on the, pod- haven't been on the podcast in a month or so. And I was like, it's like two episodes. Like and it feels <laughs> we're phasing Aaron out. We're gonna and, and one of them was a bonus there. episode, like a secondary episode, too. So it, fe- But it's weird when you miss like a week, it feels like so much more when you're used to doing this every single week like we do.
0: For sure. Well, also joining us to
1: talk about probably my favorite war movie
0: is our man, Don Shanahan. What's up, dude? How you doing, man?
2: How you doing, folks? Um, it's nice to be here, as always. And uh, Aaron, as well, welcome getting into the new place. It's fun to see the pops on the walls and the, and the sharp shells you got going. It's been real slick to watch.
0: Well, this week begins a two-episode celebration of Veterans Day, and we are talking about the 1990 biopic centering around the crew of the Memphis Bell in their last of 25 missions. It's a really great story in general, and if you haven't seen it, please make that happen. Aaron, uh, before we get into that, do you uh, have any announcements on your return? or not returning, pertaining to your return, but would you like to speak up?
1: Oh, of course we do, Patrick. Our November donor pick episode voting is now underway. This month, we will be focusing on movie friendships, and the choices are The Shawshank Redemption, again, Thelma and Louise, Swingers, The Odd Couple, and 50 If you'd like to help make one of those episodes happen and get access to our library of bonus content, to which we will be adding a fun trivia game segment later this month, you can visit patreon.com slash and become a supporter for as little as a dollar a month.
0: <laughs> At some point, I think every vote should just have Shawshank in it, whether it really like is relevant or not, because I feel like it's... It's come in so many ways and has lost so many
1: times. If it loses again, we might just need to do a poll where it's like the Shawshank Redemption versus the Shawshank Redemption five times and Uh, see which one comes. I'd vote
2: for that. I'd vote for the (laughs) third one out of the five. (laughs) You know, it it turns 25 this year. If there's a year, if you guys can squeeze it in, this would be the one. Oh, wow.
1: I did not realize it was 25 years old. I feel like that's some pressure right there.
0: time Uh is ticking Uh it's the holy grail of podcast episodes we just have not been able to get to it (laughs) all right well you are about to enter spoiler territory we are a show that loves to go about talking about movies in great detail so uh, as i mentioned before this is a movie worth watching but it's also uh, worth enjoying after excuse me before listening to our conversation That being said, you have been warned, and we will move into our official review, starting with one-word takeaways. Don, why don't you kick us off?
2: My one-word takeaway for Memphis Belle is ensemble. Um, The film has a fantastic ensemble of actors at the time where, uh, in that 90s era, these guys were not so much a who's who, but just a a good collection of future character actors and future discoveries. You know, Billy Zane had a little cup of coffee in Back to the Future. He'll go on to be in Titanic. Eric Stoltz was a, a steady actor for a long time. He'll have Pulp Fiction and more along in the way. D.B. Sweeney has Cutting Edge. He shows up here. Tate Donovan did a great TV career. This is here Connick Jr.'s film debut. We all love Sean Astin. Um, Matt, Matt Modine gets the lead, but really everyone shines here. And I just really enjoy the the ensemble aspect of this movie. It's, it's rare that you have a good ensemble picture where there's not just one dominating star. This is just such an even, even disbursement, I should say, of just of talent, of, uh, uh, just good scenes and good interactions. And of course it's rare in movies. I love the hero roll call credits. You know, if it's top gun, if it's con air, if it's this movie, just, yeah, put those great mugs on the screen and let them smile their way through and let us all know who those great people are. So ensemble is my one word takeaway. Fantastic. Don Aaron, what about you?
1: Well, that was nice. Uh, you know, I texted Patrick when I was watching this and said, wow, Sean Astin's not a fat character. This is weird because this first time he shows up, he doesn't have a shirt on. And I'm like, dude, you kind of got some, uh, you got a little bit of a nice little washboard going on there. I'm impressed. So good for him. Definitely not Samwise style at this point in his movie career. I went with the word harrowing. This was basically like a first time watch for me. And I mean, I'm quite certain that I saw it as a young teenager, but probably 30 years ago at this point. And having seen countless other war films that reenact historic events, I honestly found Memphis Belle a bit too overly cliche and romantic at times. What I do love, though, is the sense of dread that it evokes and the way it captures really just how harrowing and ridiculously dangerous it was to fly these bombing runs in World War II. Uh, the film builds a feeling for the a fear for the crew that had me fully believing everyone wasn't going to make it back. And I actually found myself a little surprised when they succeeded, despite knowing the outcome going in, which I think is a real success for a movie to be able to do that. But because of always wondering who was going to be the first to die, I I know that sounds bad, I stayed engaged and I felt more connected to the characters despite them being total cliches and having very little depth, honestly. It's not the kind of cinematic experience I feel like I need to revisit frequently, but I definitely am in awe of the crew's achievement.
0: Yeah, that stuff we'll get into uh, here in the next few minutes with regard to the cliches. Robert Ebert, excuse me, Roger Ebert had a lot to, to say about that in his review, which I found very insightful. And that leads to my one word takeaway, which is insight. Um, watching Memphis Bell, this was actually inspired by a conversation we had in FF Plus a couple of months ago. I'd had a chance to watch the HBO documentary The Cold Blue, which essentially captures a lot of footage made by a documentarian who at the time he and his crew got, a, got an actual chance to, to ride along the Memphis Belle. And the footage used in the documentary was taken from that. Watching it gave me insight into understanding not just what the life of the crew of the Belle was like, but what the lives of being a part of the Fighting Fortress was like as well. And I feel like the Memphis Bell, knowing what I know about it, as far as production, as far as the story itself, knowing that the characters themselves were really more composites than anything else, it helped me understand a lot more about the life of someone living, not only in that time period, but living through that experience of having to go on missions day in and day out, risking your life, not knowing whether or not you're going to come back alive. And that's true of any military mindset. The fact is, when you're an active military, when you're in a war, in a conflict, you don't know what's going to happen. And so that's a risk that military folks are taking every day. But Memphis Bell gives us probably a boots on the ground uh, feel, not only for the generalized population, but they, they put it in a specific crew. With the with the crew of the Bell. And I appreciated that. I appreciated that I wasn't necessarily being educated. Primarily, I was being entertained. But knowing that I was experiencing, in part, what was going on with the lives of some of these young guys, I felt like it was insightful. I felt like I was getting a glimpse into that world. And for me, cinematically, Memphis Bell does that for me. It makes me feel like I'm alongside this crew, like I am anxiously awaiting this mission to be over, but I'm also anxiously awaiting um, in some kind of morbid way, my death, (laughs) depending on which character you're talking about. So I feel like the the Memphis Bell gives that kind of insight, not only from a historical standpoint, but also from an emotional one. And I wanted to open up, go ahead, Aaron.
1: No, I was just going to point out that I too, couldn't help but compare this to The Cold Blue, the film we watched. Walk- we actually talked about it on an FF Plus episode. Did you say that? I think you just said that. Yes. Where we reviewed it, and it was the first I actually knew about this, and and that it was this dangerous for these bomber runs. And so that was in the back of my mind the whole time. And that documentarian that you're mentioning is actually Oscar award-winning director William Wyler, who was in the war and captured all this footage, was up in these Bombers himself. This is the man who's won best director and best picture for Ben Hur, The Best Years of Our Lives, and Miss Miniver. It's a pretty incredible story, and I just wanted to give a quick plug to a Netflix documentary series. It's like five episodes. It's called Five Came Back. I think it's about five episodes. It is about like a handful of these directors in Hollywood in this era who all had time away from Hollywood in the war and then came back and resumed their careers and just the way that kind of that intertwined and affected their work. And I just, it is one of the best things I watched. I think it came out two years ago. And I remember it being on our end of the year episode, Patrick, I think I plugged it in, but five came back, check it out. Um, one of the the documentary, one of the people that we're referencing here, William Wyler is one of those five men. So good stuff. Check that out.
2: Go ahead. If I I remember correctly, I think it's Weiler's daughter that helped bring this to the screen in honor of it, like being a fictionalization of her her father's documentary work. So awesome stuff. Yeah, I'm with you on take um, on um, five came back and all that. It's just those are great picks. And I think I kind of share your introduction where I love that takeaway of insight you've got where, you know, I'm probably the guy like you, Patrick, who watched this as a kid and then wanted to port to the library and find books about all this stuff because, you know, a fictional thing made me want to learn about the real stuff. And it was fascinating to do as a, as a kid and as a student.
0: That's a great segue into what I wanted to talk about first, On When we talk about biopics, we've brought this up on the show so many times about where does history stop and entertainment start. And you're always, always, always going to have a level of fantasy that comes with any story you tell because you cannot tell the complete life of a person or a group or an event in two hours. You just can't do it successfully. There's a great video essay on YouTube where uh, the conversation talks about how the musical biopic specifically is one of those that has dropped into sort of a formulaic kind of thing, with the exception of things like Rocketman that have come out recently, where you highlight a person's big event and then you flashback to their kid life their young life and then they get their break and then they get their big hit and then they go through a spiraling drug and alcohol addiction and then they finally get their redemption you know which seems true of a lot of famous musicians but that idea of falling into that same formula hints the fact that directors and writers are trying to just lump in everything they can about a person's life true biopics I think are successful at entertaining more than anything else, but also giving us a desire to find out more.
2: I and, second so, that.
0: and so when it comes to things like, like military biopics, especially these can be a slippery slope. I had a conversation with a coworker of mine about two years ago. I don't remember what the movie was, but he said he refused to watch it because he historically gets frustrated at the fact that, Any depiction of a military event or some kind of conflict that's depicted on screen blows things way out of proportion. I work with folks that are former military guys, and they are very quick to say, nope, that's not for me. Um, I have a friend of mine, a coworker who is very much interested in seeing Midway next week because it is, quote, his favorite battle to study and and know about. And so he's hoping for as much historical accuracy as possible. But he says, I'm very much aware of the fact that they're going to probably make stuff up. that There'll probably be a romance of some kind. And I'm OK with that because I understand the nature of entertainment. And I agree. I think that you have to bring something for just more than one audience in order to make your movie successful to an extent. And so that leads me to Roger Ebert, who I was reading his review, and he describes this film as Aaron, you said full of cliches with each character representing some sort of a stereotype composite of a crew member. And Aaron, I know you would probably agree with that as you mentioned with your one word takeaway, but I wanted to ask if that's true, does it take away from your enjoyment of the film or how it made you feel either before or after watching the movie, knowing that there were parts that were pieced together, even down to the fact that we weren't seeing representations of the
2: actual crew of the Spell*. You know, I, I'll, I'll jump in on top of Aaron here because I know he kind of agrees with it. I do, too, um, to a degree. Uh, but I feel like that's intentional to represent kind of a gamut that is the thousands of the different soldier stories possible. Like you said there, this is extreme fictionalization. You know, uh, it's one of those movies where everything that could go wrong does kind of things. You know, I'm pretty sure not every single – Piece of these uh, of everything that goes wrong—the landing gear, the, the the shots, the radios, the, the friendly fire—all those things like that—they probably all didn't happen on one mission, namely its twenty-fifth mission. But for a cinematic story, it's highly entertaining and enthralling, and it has this going, and it you know goes to the harrowing part. But um, there were just so many different stories out there. Of you know, we see the the post-credit epilogue of you know, two hundred thousand airmen died during this war. So if then And I guess you can kind of use the Memphis bill as kind of the flag bearer of all those guys. So because there were just so many possible soldier stories out there, and if, you, if you're going to go composite, it's, it's okay in this case because it just represents a larger thing. So I, I feel like this was intentional by the filmmakers to make this a very extreme fictionalization story, to make the entertainment value to it. But I kind of I, – I do side – I can't disagree with Ebert because this is – This is definitely cliches. I think they announced their cliches as soon as we introduce these guys on playing football on the battlefield. And that's okay because and I'll talk about it later. um, Composites, like you said, are par for the course, but they're also played by actors that, that I think, I know Aaron kind of hinted that he doesn't, but, and as it goes with my ensemble part, but I think there's enough acting here to do a little more with just a stereotype than the basics and, and to shine still. So, I'm okay with it. Um, I think composites, again, are far for the course. Don't get me wrong. Real people can be more impactful. But Memphis Bell works well, as well as, you know, Saving Private Ryan, where those are broad character strokes made tighter by an ensemble of good actors, bringing their own ideas, bringing their talents and telling a compelling story that takes place in in something we know or something we've heard of or something we can go research more on. And I was okay with it.
1: Yeah. You know, my one word takeaway at the beginning was actually cliché. And then I read that Roger Ebert interview or review of this movie before I actually noticed that you were going to talk about in the notes. So it was kind of funny to me when I saw it there, like right in the beginning, like, oh, crap. And then I thought, well, you know, that gives the idea that I'm very negative on the movie. If I use the one word takeaway as cliche, because that is the thing that I may not like the most about the film. But it is by far and away not the only thing I took away from the movie. So there, that's why I kind of changed it up a little. But I'll say this, I have no problem with composite characters, never have, never will, especially with my love for Sorkin scripted biopics. I mean, we get used to composite characters in a big way. My issue with Memphis Bell, particularly, the thing that, that holds it back for me from becoming something like really special is that we have no less than eight crew members plus at least two major head honchos on the ground lieutenant colonel and a colonel that are kind of running things behind the scenes that's at least 10 characters and for me it felt like you what you said in the beginning don nobody is the star and when nobody gets a big storyline to really go through then i kind of didn't have enough to attach to i felt like, there were just all of these kind of people floating around, and they they all had something that was interesting. But when I walked away from the movie, I didn't latch on to the memory of a specific character. I couldn't tell you, you know, this is my guy. This yeah. is the one that I really connected with the most. I can tell you moments, of course, but it just not in the same way that maybe a Black Hawk Down allows me to yeah. connect to a Josh Hartnett character. Right. Even though there are plenty of other soldiers that are going through that same experience, Josh Hartness is a he's a composite character as well. But because he's the main (laughs) of the story, I was able to kind of pull him with me, go go through it with him. I didn't feel that way about the I felt it was much more spread out. And for some people, obviously, that's going to work just fine. It just didn't work as well for me. But I definitely am with Ebert that it's not a major negative. It doesn't detract from your ability to enjoy this movie and for this story to impact you, the historical significance of it.
2: Is there one guy you wish was elevated a little more? Is there one you would pick out of the bunch and rise a little higher?
1: You know, the one that I would say is closest to it is Matthew Modine's, uh, is it Captain Dearborn? Captain Dearborn? And I would say he's the one for me, I, he's probably my favorite character as maybe that's because I relate to him quite a bit as well. But I just thought that I, I would have liked a little bit more, maybe backstory on Captain Dearborn to kind of know why he's as stoic. It, 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 we get into cliches. He's stoic because he's an officer, and so we have to have that officer that's making the enlisted men have no fun, right? <laughs> like, and who's gonna eventually, in the very end, pop that champagne and show that he has a soul and can let loose. When Once the job is done. And I loved him for that. But I think I would have liked a little more about him. If we're going crew members, I don't want to tease too much here. But Danny, I think I would have Mm -hmm. liked a little more on Danny the Irishman than I got. There's something really special that happens with his character. And I would have liked for that to have even more significance for me because I knew him better. How about you, Patch? Well... Let me, let me back up and chime into what this conversation,
0: uh, well, you know, to throw my three or four cents in, I, I think that there's definitely cliche here. There's no doubt about that, but this movie wasn't called Dennis Dearborn. It wasn't called Luke Sinclair and by design, and maybe because of, I don't know, the, the ability to write or write well, whatever. I don't know that the story was going to be centered around one person And when you have 12 people that you are giving screen time to, it's going to be difficult to emphasize one person. But I think the fact that this is called Memphis Belle was an indication. Maybe it should have been called Eighth Air Force or Flying Fortress instead, because that's really the story that's being told. It's about the Flying Fortress. And Don, as you mentioned, the Memphis Belle is the is the horse that's that's kind of pulling this whole thing because of the fact that it was the first air air crew to fly 25 missions. And like you, Aaron, I have no problem with composite characters. I think in a lot of ways that helps tell the story a lot better because composite characters are almost like an admission that a person's life or a character that we see on screen should be a culmination of all the things that you're interested in about that person or about those people. Don, you mentioned all the things that went wrong on this mission. And you're right. None of those things actually happened on the last mission. They weren't even flying in to the place that they were. It was a culmination of a a large number of, uh, of 25 missions all brought together. And in all honesty, it could have been other stories that helped inspire that from other crews that the memphis bell was not the martyr (laughs) that it's made out to be and you know what as a teenager watching this i probably thought that i was like oh my gosh wow 24 missions without a scratch are you kidding me of course they're gonna have all this stuff go wrong because you know luck and and bad things and karma and all that stuff you know mature me is thinking okay yeah you're probably bringing all this stuff together it's the same way with friday Night Lights. The fact is, those events did not take place in the championship, but it wouldn't feel as impactful if we're like, oh yeah, we're in the semifinals and all this happens, and they really only lose by this many points in a low-scoring game. There's nothing real dramatic about that. So this, to me, feels personally like a great balance by using cliche to tell me an interesting story, get me interested, and also let me connect with characters at a specific level but to answer your question i think danny's probably going to become the guy i connect with the most and to hint at what we'll talk about a little bit later he's probably one of the only 10 that isn't paired with somebody else if you um he, he feels kind of not like an outcast but he feels a little bit like but not like an anchor either he seems to me like someone who is sort of like an observer almost like a director walking around taking pictures capturing all these experiences and occasionally having interesting insight but not necessarily having that kind of stereotype attached to him other than the fact that he's irish i mean i don't know if that's something it sounds like it was but the truth is he's a guy that i connect with for the exact same reasons that you guys mentioned in that he doesn't he doesn't feel like he's cut out from a cookie cutter he feels like he has some kind of substance to him. But even at that, I don't feel like he has a specific depth that other characters do. And for my money, having those stereotypes exist gets me to experience the life of the entire crew and not necessarily, man, I wonder what Captain Dennis Dearborn was like outside of his furniture business. Or why did Luke Sinclair decide to you know, leave lifeguarding? Because it sounds clear like he enjoyed himself. Uh, I mean, these are fun questions to ask, but the movie didn't linger long enough to allow me or to really give me the desire to want to get more in-depth, because in that wasn't the point.
2: I agree with that. I know we talked about star power and all that, but I think it's it's a nice rare treat to have something that lets everyone be very even, you know, that there isn't a ball hog. I know I make fun of Mark Wahlberg for <laughs> every day and twice on Sunday for how many ball hog things he does in movies compared to other ensembles, and I'm sorry to make mad all the Mark Wahlberg people, but... I'm happy there wasn't a star here, despite I'm happy it was a nice, rich ensemble and, and everyone fit together. And you have enough pairings, you have enough little pieces and parts that no one was made more important because on that ship. And in that situation, no one is made more important than another on that ship. And I, I appreciate that.
0: One of the things that I latched on to this time is this element of fear. And this is one of two things that that really stood out to me in terms of theme is that everyone seems to recognize the fear that comes from being in this situation, even after 24 missions. Those things I start wondering about, Aaron, is every day they get up, they wonder what mission they're going to go on. They're hoping it's a milk run to France. They don't want to go to Germany. Um, one of the things, if you if you watch the cold blue that I I saw specifically was what kind of eggs they were having. Most of the time when you're going on a Uh, According to the the documentary, if you're going on a a mission that is pretty much suicidal, you're going to have nice eggs. You're going to have like real eggs, not powdered eggs that according to (laughs) according to one of the guys could gag a buzzard and then, you know, you proceed to eat the bacon afterwards. But I wanted to ask you guys, uh, does any character handle that fear in a healthy way, subjectively speaking? Um, I mean, I know it's, you know, everybody handles it differently, but how did you guys look at how each one of these, these crew members handled that element of fear?
1: Well, before we talk about crew members, I just wanted to kind of talk in general about this. Cause this was where my one word takeaway comes from. Okay. And you know, I can attest to powdered eggs, honestly being awful. And it's very true. So on big events, when things were going to happen, we would definitely have better food, better meals. We would get steak and lobster and it it doesn't necessarily make you feel like it's a last meal of sorts. At least it didn't for me because I was never necessarily going into specifically life threatening situations all the time. But if you were about to put out to sea and the captain knew that, okay, you were supposed to, let's say you're out of sea and you're going to pull into port. You've been out there for two or three weeks straight, but now you've been tasked to shoot over to this island and do some more drills, and so you're not going to see land for another two weeks. You butter the crew up. It's that simple. And what, the only way you can do that when you're out to sea like this is to usually give certain types of food, right, better food. And it's very similar in all branches of the military, no matter what it is, because there's there's little you can do. You can't give people time hardly ever because you're working you you just can't like manufacture time off so the meals is one of the first things that happens so it's interesting that you would reference that Patrick um the fear though and the way that it was built over the course of the movie for me obviously the voiceover and the narration at the very beginning signals like foreboding there is a sense that it starts from the immediate beginning of the film and then when they see the bomber coming in in the yard and in, in the outlier and it and it crashes right before the very beginning of the film before they have they embark on their own mission the way in which all of the airmen watch that i love the filming of this the the way that the the shots are framed they're kind of holding their cigarettes down and watching and it lands it's flaming it blows up And we watch as they just pull their cigarettes back up to their mouth. They take a drag. They Most of them turn, and they walk away. Nobody says a word. There's no freaking out. It is is signifying to us that this is a regular occurrence, and this is something that they are very well aware could happen at any moment to any one of them. The next moment comes when I don't remember who it is, so I don't want to mess it up, but somebody is drunk after the party. And we've had a lot of fun moments, you know, getting ready to get out and go. Somebody losing their virginity in the cockpit and all this good stuff. Uh, Dearborn, I think it is, is like actually talking to the Memphis (laughs) Bell before they leave. And somebody comes out there drunk and falls to the ground screaming. Oh, it's Lowenthal. It's Lieutenant Lowenthal. He's like, I don't want to die. Over and over and over. That got me really badly because – you know that that's inside of these guys and you as a military person never want to let that out. You can't like you see this all the time in movies, good movies depict it this way. It's an, you have to internalize that in order to do the thing and be able to focus on the job and to be able to operate at the highest level. And that release um, is very touching. And then when they get up again in the, in the air, I couldn't help but think, with all the things going wrong, it didn't bother me one bit. Like you guys, the composite nature of all the, everything going wrong at one time. Some of that stuff is so realistically shown. Like it wasn't until we watched the documentary on the cold blue that I realized that they had to have oxygen because they couldn't breathe and that the, the, you could see their breath and you could see the frost on the windshield because it was like, I forgot what the degrees was, Patrick, but it was like zero or something. I mean, it was it was insanely cold. Like they could only live for so long at that temperature because they were so high. And when you see like the plane cut in half and you hear over the radio for a sustained period, uh, mother and country, when that one goes down and you just hear them screaming as you're watching the plane. I mean, I I cried. I'm not going to lie. I was crying. I, I like lost it because the, it really sucks you in, in that moment. And you feel like you're in that cockpit and and, or you're in the Memphis bell and you're watching this plane that could have been you that five seconds later, you thought you were celebrating because you took down a fighter. And it's, it's a matter of inches. It's a matter of all these planes around you. You're literally flying into just an incredible amount of anti-aircraft fire, right? (laughs) And these fighters and it's luck. There's There's so little you can do. It's not like evasive maneuvers. This isn't maverick dogfighting where you can outwit the other pilots. You might be the one that gets shot. You might not. But it doesn't mean that the guy next to you did something wrong. It's luck. It's all luck. It's fate, whatever you want to call it. And so for me, that is incredibly powerful. And I think the film did a great job of capturing the crew understanding that, the way that each of them have these superstitious tokens in various things uh, the whether it's a metal or a rubber band um, whether it's a picture like you see a couple of times where they freak out because those things have gone missing or they've been taken away from them they think and i get it i mean when you're going into something that is so luck-based your life is based on it you're gonna want to cling to something right um people of faith hopefully are you know going to cling to that but You're going to do anything you can to find a way to calm yourself. And I think that all of that captures the fear. That's why it was so strongly sticking out to me throughout the whole movie. Like just that sense of dread and foreboding and knowing how many men actually lost their lives over the multiple world wars flying these missions. It doesn't matter to me that these guys didn't. That's not what it's about to me. It's not about making of heroes who somehow beat the odds and did the thing and were so great. It's really more about showing us as an audience. Yeah. We're look at all the guys that didn't right. Look how awful this is. Yeah. They made it. That's great. We're glad, but it's about like the experience of flying through those missions and not those people and their success. In my opinion. And I think that's where it definitely succeeds. Sorry. I I know I kind of ramble in there, but
2: love it. Love it. No, I, I also love I got to answer with you. Um, I love the cinematic cues that they put into that. Like you said, the framing, the way they shot that, the way the actors compose themselves. I love when um when Llewell, um one falls, uh, when he does the, when he cries out the echo and how just as a, from a cinematic standpoint, it echoes through the hangars as if the planes can hear it, too. You know, and, and that way, you know, the, the vessels that bring these boys into battle maybe know the, you know, the. Almost personification of those, you know, of those fears and pieces like that. Um, I got to put a little, a little shine on uh, George Fenton's score. You know, it's a, it's a fine little score. He's not a very, he was a very prolific composer in the '90s and all that, but just enough patriotism, enough little allure and and luster in there in different scenes and 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 also he can paint dread very very well. So I just from everything you said Aaron, the cinematic cues to put that in to to a screen presentation in a, in a situation that has you really soaked in, man, that was really, just really, really well done in that area.
0: I also look at what you guys have said and to piggyback on all of that, the way in which that fear is handled by each individual says quite a bit about that particular type of person that the night before they're all dealing with it in some way, shape or form. Um, the fact that we see, Somebody like Rascal trying to get laid essentially and not being able to, and then of course the <laughs> the polar opposite Verge, who ends up getting the girl, uh, but doesn't really know what to do inside this cockpit uh, or inside the the bombardier area. But then you have Phil, played by D B Sweeney, who is in isolation and he cries out, you know, I don't want to die, I don't want to die. And I think that these are all reflective of kind of a a last rites, like, what can I do this last night before we go on this, this final mission? And the fact is, it is their final mission, regardless of whether or not they live or die. So I think that makes it more apparent, the fact that I can buy into these reactions, these responses for all these individuals to say and do what they do because of the fact that regardless of whether or not they live or die, they're not getting in that plane again. It's hard to say how they, well, Phil, obviously he's like, I don't want to die. He feels like he is. But like even Billy Zane's Val, he's talking to him earlier and Phil goes, tell me the truth. Are you scared? And as suave and cool and as full haired guy as he is in this case, he's saying, no, I'm Val. And he goes, come on. I think I enjoy those moments probably more than anything else where we see how each individual is responding in different conversations, in a look, in the way in which they are just kind of navigating through that party, how it is that they are are handling this. I feel like they're all scared, but the way in which they hold it in by either being stoic like Dennis or... Uh, kind of outlandish like Luke is a direct depiction of who their characters are I don't think it's because they care any more any less about the mission or about what's coming up I think it's just a nature of saying here's who these people are and here is how they're gonna have to respond to it this is how they blow off steam essentially and I like the fact that we get individual responses like that because it allows us to connect at least in some part to yeah I would totally do that I would be." Personally, I would be Phil, like I would be like screaming at the top of my lungs, I don't want to die. And then I would proceed to get incredibly drunk and give all my crap away to my to my crew members, like just waiting for that death toll uh, or that death to come. I I don't know that I could hold it in like Dennis and be that controlled, which is why I'm probably not fit to be a pilot in that situation. But see, on any given viewing, I could probably relate to any of these characters because they're depicted so distinctly from, from one another. And a lot of that fear, I think, bleeds into this pressure that they feel as crew members, as brothers in the sense. And that pressure doesn't just live with these 10 individuals. As I'm watching the, um, one, one of my favorite technical setups is when, they are getting ready that morning and you see these other crew members that are you know, gassing up all the planes and then everybody's getting ready to take off. And you see this incredible like pre-flight stuff going on. Like the planes are rolling onto the runway. It's with, with Fenton's score, Don, it is, it's, it's a moment that I get just kind of I tear up. I'm like, Oh my gosh, it's their last mission, they're going to do it. And, uh, and, and it, it's magical to me. And so I, th- I think about not only the, the 10 in that plane, but also these other individuals in these other planes, mother and country, this rookie crew that's coming up for the first time and they're being thrown right into the trenches. And then you think about um, you think about Behringer, the PR guy, and then Harriman, these, these two individuals that are trying to hold down their respective jobs and responsibilities within this whole gamut of stuff. Just evoked a lot of pressure that I felt like every individual had to some level, and I wanted to see if you guys had latched on to any particular one or if you felt that kind of pressure coming from
2: any of those characters. Uh, definitely. I'm probably one of those people where I'm not a very superstitious person, so I can't. I don't know if I can call that superstition healthy. So yeah, Dennis stands out for sure as being the guy who's you know incredibly razor focused with precision, practice, and determination with his job. But I'll still say what you say that. How each of these crew members handle the pressure and the fear are the extra sprinkles of character development that make these guys greater than stereotypes. And like you said, in from a technical manner, they pull all this off at this grandiose party in this, you know, they, um, they shot this on two military bases in England where these are vintage hangars and vintage areas. And, and, you know, the bathrooms with the writings on the wall. And like I was astounded this t- this viewing now with my 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 more mature eyes compared to when I was a kid, just all the the period detail and everything, not just we're going to talk about the planes for sure, but just all the areas and places they shot, were, you know, still kind of lent into, like you said, all the machinations that move around. I was also interested in um, a little piece of IMDb trivia where the grounds crew guy that uh, is on the bicycle you see every now and then, the, you know, I only have one. You only got one wheel. The, the guy who says the line. Oh, my gosh, they only have one wheel down. He had a bigger part in the movie as like the like the behind the scenes guy, the guy whose sole job is to be the mechanic of that plane to make sure that plane was tip top every time so these guys can go home. And how that's a an unseen layer that was in the movie and he had most of his lines cut. Where I'm like, oh man, that'd be a fun as if we needed an eleventh character. But even still, like you said, to notice all that stuff and to have just the camera catch all that was really astounding and cool. I think the in a way that kind of makes the MVP of this film in a lot of ways. The second unit director, the guy who's just shooting all this sidebar stuff without the, all the actors there, it's a guy by the name of James Devis, He's the director photographer of photography for the aero unit, to go along with aerial coordinator and pilot Mark Hanna and his father Ray Hanna. They kind of did all of this stuff with with you know five of the surviving eight you know uh, flying fortresses at the time, making all this movement and happen, and just I, I I can only imagine the fleet of technical advisors that are there just kind of no, that's not how they would do that. Oh, they would be delayed. Oh, they would go this way. You know, just all the little pieces and parts I think lend into, like you said, pressure where I think there's enough people in all these actors ears that go, no, man, you're, you're, you're out of your mind right now. You're, you're, you're thinking this, you're thinking that all the things that go through your head. And then your buddy next to you is having the same feelings where I think you, you, you bring up a very good point with pressure. And I, I don't know really who deals with the most, but, the way it comes out either socially or in a workplace manner is it definitely shows up. It helps identify what these characters are.
1: For me, it's really not as much about a single person. Again, it's weird. I I latched onto the group as a whole, almost entirely, but there's just the moments of how they're dealing with it. Right. And it's, and I would, I kind of group the pressure and the fear together. They blend in a lot of ways for me, but scenes that I remember scenes that, got me emotionally invested in the movie and invested in the characters when they're heading to the bell to go out on the mission. And they're piled on that Jeep in a completely unsafe manner. Like there are way too many people on that damn Jeep and they are singing amazing grace on their way there. And it cues and continues to play the song in the background as we see them cleaning and loading and prepping the aircraft for launch. And then Right after that, we roll into this delay, and for me, I related to this delay in a huge way, okay? So it was very much like something I went through all the time, when the ship is supposed to get underway, and we have a couple hours before, we are out at our stations on the forecastle of the ship, that's front, on the fantail, wherever you are supposed to be, and you're ready, right? You're waiting on the tugboats to pull in. Because they're going to have to pull you out to where you can get underway on your own power. You're waiting on people on the pier who are going to release your lines so you can actually cast off. There's all these different little pieces that have to come into play. You can't just – the ship can't just be like, okay, I'm leaving now. Peace out, right? Like there's other players involved. And there's always a million things that would go wrong. So if you're supposed to get underway at 8 a.m., I mean the odds of that happening were always so low. And something would break or someone would be late. And you had to sit there. You had to sit there in your gear, right? Ready and waiting to actually do a thing. And you couldn't go anywhere. You just had to wait for the time to be right. And the same thing that they go through here. And Captain Dearborn is like, let's do all the pre-flight checks again. And I loved it because the co is like, my goodness gracious, he's so annoyed. He's like, I'm, I'm done with this. Like, I don't need any more pressure. Like, It's fine. It is fine. We have done it. Captain Dearborn, he's dealing with that pressure because he wants to make sure it's right. And by doing this over and over again, it keeps him in a system. It keeps things flowing, keeps people engaged so their minds don't wander. Because that's what happens, to be honest, is you start to let yourself go into other places mentally. And then you have to flip that switch back. And sometimes that can be hard. And in these guys' case, that could relate in a mistake that would cause their death. And so, you know, Captain Dearborn is trying to keep them all, like, locked in. And I just remembered so well, like, when that was happening, I was like, my goodness gracious. It's so hard to deal with that. The the main character that I saw deal with pressure one of the times is, I think it's Val. Is Val the almost doctor? (laughs) He calls himself a doctor, right? So it's the whole ending sequence where they come to him and they're like, man, you gotta fix him. He's hit. Danny's hit. And he's like... I'm not a doctor. And you're like, what are you talking about? You're the doctor. And he's like, no, I lied. And he has this pressure put on him where everyone is looking at him. And from what I can best tell, they are choosing whether or not to throw Danny out of the plane. I'm guessing with a parachute uh, in order to hope that he lands safely and someone picks him up and is able to give him medical attention because that is a better chance at saving his life than Waiting to land with him on the plane. That's crazy uh, that it would come to one of those two options. And Val faces that pressure. Val has to make that decision. And one of the places where I those composite characters and that sprinkling of spreading things didn't work as well for me is that scene because we just cut to you know Val giving him fake CPR. It's not even right. It's not even correct CPR. He doesn't give him breasts or anything. He's just pounded on his chest and of course he comes back to life and it's supposed to be this moving moment. I would have liked to see more out of that moment though, because I, we get the sense that Val is dealing with this incredible pressure and he's gotta, he's the one that's gotta make the call, you know, and he's gonna feel responsible for Danny's life now, whatever happens. And I would have liked to see a little more from him, but I like that we get to see what it would be like for someone to deal with that to try and Manage a triage situation in the air with no medical experience because you deal with what you got on board.
0: You absolutely do. And what I think is comforting and something that is echoed throughout this entire movie is a sense of grace that's given to each one of the crew members by one another. That's a great way of putting it. And you have a guy like Val who is clearly not trained medically, but Phil says, Screw it, get in there and do something you'd probably know more than I mean, even two weeks is more than what we know. If Danny had died, which would make me sad, but if he had died, I don't know that Val would have, I mean, he would have felt that, that remorse, but I don't know that any of his crew members would have allowed, would, would have supported that. I think they would have rallied around him and said, you did all you could do. Not how dare you not go to medical school and not be able to save his life. I don't know. The movie doesn't really give a clear indication on, his confession being made to the entire crew there's a great little pan shot where uh where phil is saying i know you're scared we're all scared don't do this so i make the assumption that the crew knows that he doesn't know what to do whether it's because he doesn't have the knowledge or because he's freezing in terms of being able to perform as a doctor but i think regardless of what would have happened the fact that he said okay let's pull him back we'd rather him try to survive on the plane and die there than by throwing him out, by him making that decision, by being the leader in that moment, which I feel like everybody, I'll say everybody, different individuals have those leadership moments. Uh, this was Val's. So I think when, you, when he faces that pressure, when he faces that fear saying, am I going to be brought out as a fraud by saying, okay, we'll do what we can. I'll keep him alive as, as, as much as I can until we land to me, that felt like, okay, that's the crew rallying around you and being able to give that kind of grace to him, I think helped kind of fuel him to be able to do the job as best he could and leave the, the rest in the hands of God. As, uh, as Craig, uh, Colonel Craig Harriman says earlier in the movie relating to the mission. But I think that, yes, I think him and Dearborn, he and Dearborn both represent, Visibly kind of feeling that pressure that we can see as as an audience. I think in a lot of ways, um, others are are feeling that in their own right, but it's not really depicted as much. I'll tell you two people that I thought made a great kind of case for how is the pressure of what's happening in the whole situation affecting you are Berenger's character uh, played by uh, John no, I'm sorry, yeah, Derringer's character played by John Lithgow and then um, Harriman's character played by David uh, Strathern. They are a great kind of polar opposite pairing in this movie. You got who's focused, or Derringer who's focused on the publicity of the Memphis Bell and its crew. And then you've got Harriman really focused on the initial task at hand, getting these crews up in the air, making sure they all come back safe, even though that's completely out of his hands. He can't control that. I see them as probably a depiction of maybe a perception of what the war is. So if we're talking about composites and ideas, I think both of these guys represent polar opposites. And I it, it brought to mind the question, who's right in this situation? Derringer or, or Harriman? I wanted to kinda of open that up to you guys and see what you think.
2: Oh man. Um I mean if, I think you have to go to Harriman here, you know. I mean I think Lith- I, there's not a black hat in the movie. There's not really a villain. But if there's a guy who's, you know, semi-pushing the wrong choices and the wrong pressures and saying the wrong things and doing the wrong things, it's Lithgow. I mean, he's not doing it in a in his 80s, 90s villain fashion of Lithgow in his classic sense, but nut- he's pushing the wrong buttons for sure. Um, he means, well, you know, we've seen Captain America and the war bonds and how important that whole arm of the war is. So he's doing it in a External way and and it probably didn't have any combat experience and all that, but I think there's that, you know, it, it comes down to that crucial scene, you know, in, in the middle with the in the middle of the movie with the letters, when when Harriman pulls him aside, dumps that drawer of letters in front of him and, and forces Lithgow's character to read some of those, and then the archival footage comes on in the background and, and mysterious unnamed voiceovers coming on in the background, and you hear real pieces and real stories of that war, then then it finally hits Behringer. So I mean, you have to call Harriman the right one here. Don't get me wrong. I love Lethgall's enthusiasm. Calling them the luckiest sons of bitches in the world is always fun. You know, he's got that pep, you know, for sure. But then you see, you know, Strathern come come right in and go, no, they're, they're just ordinary men, sir. You know, just stuff like that, where he knows the gravity of the situation and never lets it overcome, you know, a, a greater thing or a cuter thing. You know, he, he allows leeway because they're having the stance, they're having the party, and they're just trying to make things work. But at the same time, he knows the real weight and he has to be the right one here for sure.
1: Yeah, you, I mean, you're 100% right. I would actually feel a little concerned if someone was to think that Derringer was in the right and Harriman wasn't here. That letter scene was almost my connecting point. I love what Harriman tells him. Derringer says something about the Memphis Bell and that crew being up there. And Harriman's response is, I have 24 crews up there. They are all special to me. Oh, that's what it was. He says that Memphis Bell is special. he says, I have 24 crews up there and they're all special to me. And therein lies the difference, right? Now, the thing is, Derringer as a human being and as a person is really indicative of his job. And that's the thing. He is a PR guy. That is his role. Everything he's doing is in service of what the Army has put him there. Not the Army. The Air Force has put him there to do. They as in big brass government side, needs to be able to leverage the success of these people to the public in order to sell war bonds to continue funding the war. It's a very real problem that we have. All they know is people are dying. Their husbands and their brothers and their sons are not coming back alive. So when you have something like this that is, has been an insane success where the guys are going to come home, you have to do this in a way to, you you want to do this so badly to parade them around, to show the people that it can be happening, right? Like it, it's not all bad. It's not all, you know, fire and brimstone and fund it. Because you had to do that somehow. So it's, I understand why and I don't hate him because of that. And I think that's one of the things I like about the movie a lot is it doesn't paint him as a villain, Don. Like you said, he doesn't get to that point where so many films would like go all out villain with him. They'd have him make some personal choice that feels gross and icky. He really hangs on that gray area of more not really understanding or just having his focus in the wrong place. He doesn't have a an evil sense to him where he doesn't care about the men. And, you know, he comes in at the end and he still hasn't quite gotten it. Like he just wants to get a picture of them. But that's his job and my initial feeling is like, dude, that's gross. Stop it. He's like, come on, no, like get right here, get right here. Hold on, we just, just let me get the picture, just let me get the picture. And then I found myself stepping back from that a second, going, you know what? If somebody didn't do that, we don't get that picture. Nobody gets to see that. Nobody in American public gets to experience the joy and the jubilation and the scene that was taking place when that plane lands. And so part of me is really actually grateful that there are folks willing to be the bad guy, essentially kind of annoy other people in order to capture this for historical purposes. So because of that, I, I love him because I don't hate him. But at the same time, I'm like, "Mm, ah, come on, man, come on. And, and I love Harriman. I love Harriman's devotion to his crew and unwavering mindset that the mission is not accomplished until the mission is actually accomplished.
2: I also love, just I got to piggyback on it, that final scene when it is that celebration, when that champagne bottle pops and they're trying to get that picture. I love that it doesn't linger on them with, you know, reverie right in the moment in a close-up. I love the zoom out. I love the zoom out of like, like you said, you're watching history happen, whether it can get documented or not. But when you fade out and you don't see faces anymore, but you know those boys are there and they pile on that Jeep one more time. And you don't need to see close ups. You don't need to see faces. You know, they're happy. You know, they're awesome. But at the same time, by zooming out and showing the the, the scope of that scene, we're back to making them composites again. That these can be any guys that finish their mission and finish this day and get that accomplishment and make it through where it, it sure it's Bill and sure it's the movies titled that way and all that. But it could have been anyone. That's that was all of our victories. That was all of their victories. It's the ground crew. It's everybody's driving the, guy, the Jeep driver. And I love that scene that it doesn't super duper linger on the high five locker room stuff that a sports movie would. It zooms out and it just lets you soak it all in as if you're on the next flight home with them. And I just love that moment that it doesn't overdwell and over celebrate, like you said, for a different icky choice, a different icky thing. No showma, no, no one's showing anybody up. It just it just hangs and it hangs perfect. I like it. And it's such a great ending.
0: Absolutely. And seeing the crew on that on that medical truck, you know, they're going with Danny to the hospital because they are a family. They are a crew of brothers. Uh, one of, one of my favorite moments is when Danny's in the, uh, in, in the latrine and he goes, I never had any brothers, I had four older sisters. And Eric Stoltz makes that great facial expression. Like, Ooh, yeah. Can you believe that? He said, these guys are like brothers to me. I don't know what's going to happen when, uh, we all get together. And I love the fact that he said when and not if. I mean, he seems very optimistic about this. But to go back to what you guys are talking about, I think when we look at, at Derringer, Aaron, you're right. It's easy to make him out to be the villain. Don, it's easy to paint him as a bad guy. But you're exactly right. We have to be able to have some of this documented. I, for some reason, I kept thinking about those scenes from, uh, from It's a Wonderful Life when the montage you know on ve day we wept and prayed and on vj day we wept and prayed again we not they but we as a country and the only way that the united states could experience the highs and lows of the war that was going on was through pictures was through audio was through news and fake news wasn't a thing back then we relied on photos we relied on uh, radio reports And to be able to capture the fact that these guys are on the ground, they're alive, they are celebrating the fact that they are alive, not just that they've completed their tour of duty, that demands to be captured. And somebody has to be the bad guy. So I don't know if Derringer ever needed to, quote, learn a lesson. I think he he was doing his job, just like everybody else. I think in a lot of ways, it reminds me a lot of Matt Modine's character when he's asked a question and he just says, because I said so. And whether or not he agrees with it or not, he's being told this is what needs to be done. I'd like to believe that somewhere, it's not depicted in the movie, but somewhere Derringer has a heart for for these boys. But the fact is, he's not boots on the ground with him. He's not experiencing the day-to-day stuff. And so he doesn't have that perspective. So you can't really fault him for that. He's coming in with that brass mentality saying, I need to capture this. This is important not only for my job, but for the country. The country needs to see that the war is actually making progress. Um, Again, going back to Danny, he says, we might be old men by the time this thing is all over, so I can't really speculate on what's gonna happen after the war. So there's that very reality not just with the people that aren't experiencing it, but these actual crews, like how long is this going to go on? There's no end in sight. And so there's this real desperation. So I feel like Derringer's character in some sideways method shows us that we've got to get a positive message out. We've got to put not just a positive spin, but we've got to see, Hey, you know what? There is success. There is hope because the Memphis bell just did it. And, I like that this movie doesn't paint him in such a black and white way that it really is tension between he and Harriman because they both value things humanistically, probably one more than the other. But in their own right, I think they value them equally and they're both important to an extent. These pairings, uh, particularly with these two, really bleed over into what I saw uh, specifically this time around with the pairings. Of the crew with the exception of harry connick jr's clay and danny i felt like there was a deliberate sense of pairing folks up with each other now proximity matters and so you have a a left-waist gunner and a right-waist gunner together you have the bombardier and the navigator who sit close to each other and then you have of course the pilot and co-pilot and then um but then you have the the tail gunner with verge and then rascal putting themselves as as a pairing and for me i looked at those pairings and i thought what was the director what were the writers trying to do with those and i didn't know if you saw those pairings having kind of a a purpose but i wanted to throw it to you guys to see did you see any any value in that did you feel like there was some purpose behind those pairings i see value and purpose
2: for sure um Again, I got I got to point to Ensemble. I think that that's a great chance to mix up the cocktail a little bit. You know, if you put these two people together, how would they mix and how would they do? Because sure, if we're playing with archetypes and stereotypes and, you know, the Cleveland kid and the religious kid and the Irish kid, what what are they like when you put a few of them together? And um, I think my favorite pairing in the bunch is Phil and Val, you know, because you have. The, the exude the guy who tries to exude cool and professionalism and calm quietness and the guy who's flipping out drunk, you know, and how can that work in two of maybe the most maybe two of the most crucial roles in the plane that isn't piloting pilot. It's the guy dropping those bombs and it's the guy keeping everyone on course. And, and in the end, the guy with the most pressure who tries to exert the most pressure to save the day, you know, turning that wheel, you know, to, on the runway, I, I think Phil's redemption is a big part of that and, and Val's redemption before that of trying to fix Danny. They, they both get, I don't want to even call him a hero moment, you know, cause I, I guess Phil gets a bit of a hero moment, but not a Tom Hardy dunker hero moment or anything like that. But uh, that's my favorite pairing of the bunch because again, you have two good actors there too. You have Billy Zane and you have DB Sweeney, DB Sweeney's the rough hockey player from cutting edge. You have the future, you know, uh, the future Titanic, you know, British villain who is going to lose his hair and look really good like me. But, um, yeah, so I, 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 like you said, I like those pairings. Some of them are a little more bluntly obvious, like the, the gruff Chicago one in the, in the, in the hazy, you know, so I get that some of that's still downright, you know, in the cliche of territory that Eber's talking about, but some of them are played really well together.
1: Yeah. I did not latch on to specific pairings as much other than the brief one where we see, and I'm trying to remember which two it is, but I think it was Virgin Rascal with the pendant. And is that, is that the right characters? Am I naming the right guys or was it Jack? It was Jack and Jeannie. It was Jack and Jeannie. So Jeannie has, I believe the pendant that jack is being a jerk and fakes to throwing it out the window and then in the end jack is fake shot or he's shot and genie is freaking out about it and he comes to him and he's like what are you what are you doing man you're like acting like you're dying and you just got scratched and jack lifts up the pen and he hadn't actually thrown it away that's the kind of military relationship i'm used to um, I could not tell you how accurate that is. It is 100% accurate. I mean, there are so many people that go through situations like this because you spend so much time with another person and you may not have a lot in common outside of your job. But when it comes to your job, you have everything in common. And in this situation, you mean everything to each other, right? And you spend so much time together that... Even when you are consistently razzing each other or messing with each other, there's a level of respect and genuine care that develops between you. And that epitomized it, that scene in the plane. Uh, And so that one stuck out to me big time, just that moment between those two characters. And Dennis and Luke as a whole, again, I just love Dearborn and his stoic nature and the way that he operates the plane – the scenes where he is deciding to go back and make a second run. And they all know that he's giving them very low odds of now coming out of this alive because they're going to go back for a second. I mean, it's, you already are running such a huge risk to go through this thing one time, but to go through it again is practically suicidal and they just they don't want to do it. And he makes the call and he is firm in that. And I love the way that Luke is kind of serving as our surrogate here because he's freaking out, which we would be freaking out. And he's trying to make the case that they don't want to do that. And it gets paid off in a fun little moment where the tomato packets get exploded. And those two characters who've been kind of really just operating with this intense tension ever since the pre-flight check situation early on have a release together and a laugh together where they see that they're glad that neither one of them is hurt. And they're, again, they have that tension in their way that they operate, but at the same time they have a deep caring that actually exists and it comes out when they realize that neither one of them are hit and it's just these stupid tomato packets and they get to kind of calm down for a second and and be happy. And so I like those two pairings. Um, And then I would say none of the others ones specifically stuck out to me too much.
2: I think the the other f- fun part about the Luke and Dennis one is is Luke gets that redemption too when they did make that dive to put that fire out and they have to forcefully work together and and it's Luke pulling that call at the same time and they and and assisting in pulling that thing out of the dive. That's a nice moment those two get to have too. So yeah, spot on, Aaron. One of the
0: effects that I found with these pairings is everything that you guys mentioned which is getting the individual relationships set up and established and pay off what I see with any kind of relationships is you're not going to have you're going to have a relationship with a crew a team of brothers but you're going to latch on to someone and that someone is probably going to be the person that you develop the most trust with either because you're doing the same job or you're because you're in the same proximity with that person obviously between Val and Phil they did different jobs but they sat next to each other on these missions that took upwards of like eight hours I mean, they were in a plane for a long time, freezing their butts off. So you have this common ground that you exist in, not only geographically, but you develop that kind of relationship and where you latch on to that person. And I think there's something pretty beautiful about the fact that whether it's by design or just because of how you are like packaged with each other, you build that kind of trust with one another. And Don, uh, both you and Aaron mentioned these great little redemptive moments, and I think I won't say everybody had those, but the ones that did really mattered. The fact that you had um, Dennis and Luke, you know, uh, Luke giving that, having that redemptive moment with putting the fire out, um, giving Dennis that that trust to say, "Look, I'm not going to complain this time around." Obviously, that comes after the fact that he has destroyed a or that the fighter that he shot down uh, slashed through mother and country's tail, you know, so he's in kind of some shock there. But Phil and Val, as we mentioned earlier, Phil giving Val that encouragement, hey, you can do this. I know you're not a doctor, but we're all scared. We're with you on this. And then there's something really interesting. I don't know if this is by design, but when Jack reveals that he has the, the patron saint, of lost things, which I love the line earlier. He says, didn't either patron say the lost things. And Jeannie goes, yeah, I can't find him uh, a little bit ironic there. But when Jack reveals that he has it, he goes, goes, how'd you do that? And he goes magic. And then all of a sudden the bombs start kind of happening. I-, I didn't know if that was for effect or if it was just part of the, the soundtrack that went into it, but I just thought that was interesting. But I think these, re- I think these pairings were intentional, not only to show camaraderie, with individuals to kind of let us digest this ensemble cast on a more microscopic level, but also to show these opposites. Don, you mentioned that you have opposite characters, opposite stereotypes, opposite composites mixed in with each other. Opposites usually do create conflict, but that conflict is a lot more interesting and it has a lot better payoff. So I think from a filmmaking standpoint, from a narrative standpoint, these opposites, these pairings made a lot of sense it doesn't make me wonder where does clay fit in all this except to be the crooner that kind of brings people together. So maybe he brings people together through music and Danny brings people together through photography and inspirational words. So we'll go ahead and just make that bow really pretty right there. And we'll say, that's what the purpose is
2: and move
0: on. Well, do you guys have anything else you want to cover or bring up technicals, Don?
2: Yeah. I mean, I got to, I'm the filmmaker guy where I, I can't help but compliment this stuff. I'm um, uh, I got to send props to the production designer. This is Stuart Craig. He is a three-time Oscar winner. He uh, won Oscars for Gandhi, the English Patient. He did five future Harry Potter films. And even though these are just, you know, period-era barracks, I, I like I said earlier, I love the detail. And to find these planes and to make these interior sets with every little knob, every little switch, every little scuff of paint just is fantastic looks from a production value standpoint. Um, to, I know it's 1990, so it's not the coolest thing in the world, but the Visual effects supervisor, Nicholas Brooks, he would go on to win an Oscar for What Dreams May Come. Uh, Put together great model work, great uh, aerial photography. Again, I I shouted out the uh, aerial guys earlier where that that whole unit sells this story. Because like Aaron said, when you're doing takeoff and you're seeing all those planes lined up and Fenton scores going, man, it's just a let's go moment of of takeoff and all that. Um, I had two cool facts I wanted to kind of pop in here as well. Uh, Sandra Bullock filmed the role that was in this movie. It was deleted from the final print. I have no idea where she would be because th- this movie is definitely not passing any Bechtel tests for all those folks out there. Um, and then another fun fact is uh, Matt Modine, his uncle, uh, his name was Wilder Modine, was an actual B-17 pilot during World War II. Matthew wore his uncle's uniform and bomber jacket in the film and later donated to the Wounded Warrior Project. So cool connection. You know, he had to just be just jacked to play that kind of role thinking, yeah, I'm going to play my uncle. Uh, you know, in, in a way, because we're playing composites here. So cool facts there. Um, final prop, um, director Michael Keaton Jones. Uh, this was the beginning of a really good 90s run for him. You know, this was uh, he went on to do Doc Hollywood, which is a nice Michael J. Fox movie. I really enjoy uh, this boy's life. Gave us a young Leonardo DiCaprio doing, Robert, you know, parent against Robert De Niro. Uh, I love Rob Roy. As a, as a completely different thing he's did. And uh, even the Jackal with Bruce Willis and, and Richard Gere and kind of a kind of a bit of a dueling assassin thing was a pretty good run for this guy. Uh, disappeared after that. He made City by the Sea with James Franco and De Niro and dropped off the face of the earth. So, yeesh. Well,
0: I think it was James Franco that did that. You know, he was... I think you're right. <laughs> I tell you, Don, this movie reminds me that practical effects... Uh, can still reign supreme. Absolutely. There, there's such a great mix of actual planes. And I don't know if there's digital footage of of the planes. I don't think there is. I think it was no. all actual planes. And they or only model used... Work. model
2: work. Model work was work. the other thing they did a little bit of. But yeah. Right.
0: So to capture some of those shots and intertwine them with actual footage from World War II, particularly during the uh, the letter reading scene, I thought was really effective. I feel like we're right in the... The cockpit with these guys. I feel like we're right in with these crews, and even the coloring of the of the film felt very vintage and very perfect for the time. I, I I've seen stills from Midway, and I'm excited to see how that's actually filmed. I haven't seen a lot of trailers for it, but I'd like to think that it's filmed in a way that reminds us of those uh, old war movies or the way in which. War was depicted through film at the time. So I, I feel like the Memphis Belle did this very effectively in terms of how the coloring was and the way in which the, the whole movie was shot. Technically,
2: I could also see Midway be doing every digital bell and whistle possible to just blow us out of the water with wet, you know, wham, bam, pow compared to this being just tension, tension on the line and tension right there in, in the right. faces and all that. So, yeah.
0: And that's the benefit of a good war movie is it can do all those things or none of those things or focus on one or the other, which can make it effective depending on the story that you're telling. Well, let's move into our connecting points, Dom. We'll kick it over to you. What was uh, your connecting point?
2: Oh, man. Um, long, Kind of a bit of a long story and kind of a three-part thing. So uh, when I was a kid... Uh, My father told me how he used to be a recreational pilot before he was married and a dad. And I've never seen my dad fly. I I barely knew he did it until he brought it up when I was a kid. We used to fly like little Cessnas for side jobs. He worked for a a farm service company, and that's how he got around for different things. But, you know, when you're a kid, flying is the coolest thing you've ever done in your life. And I never flew in a plane until I was in college. But um, uh, when he he took the family, my brother, my my mom, and I, to a a small local air show once where I saw – a B seventeen in action, and man, um, the majesty of seeing that big bird in person just impressed the hell out of me because its size, its sound, its just its look, and um, I, I wanted to know, know more, know more about it, and, and, and find out what it was more, more of what it was like. And then the movie came out soon after, and I, I was just hooked. So I. I this was a tape I wore out in my VHS. So this is probably the movie I've watched second most of my life after Top Gun. It just was that thing my brother and I turned into a little military brats and loved. Um, second, is in terms of a connecting point, like many of us have said earlier, you, you these are composites and you can't help but find yourselves relating to one of these pieces of the crew. And um, I was always the shortest guy out of everyone in my class forever. I was the shortest guy in my, in my school class until high school. So Sean Astin's rascal is the guy I wanted to be, you know, because he was this ladies man and five foot four. And I didn't turn five foot four till freshman year of college. And I'm five nine now, which is nothing. But still, I I, I wanted to be rascal. And then, of course, four years later, he's Rudy and I went, I'm Irish Catholic. So I'm like, I, you know, Sean Astin was, you know, probably the Farrah Fawcett poster in my brain for a while there. But at the same time, I couldn't help but also kind of still be Stoltz's redheaded Danny Boy, because I'm also the Irishman just about everywhere I go. So I saw myself in those guys all, just so often. And then my last little piece in terms of the long story here is um, my grandparents made me a big, big band music fan. And um, the song that plays on the AFN radio in the film, um, uh, I Know Why and So Do You, is uh, I knew it before the movie, or at least in Little Sip, it's like, oh, know, grandma listened to that song. And so uh, when I every time I watch the movie and seen it a zillion times, it's a a song that's always stuck in my head. And uh, Guillermo del Toro used it a few years ago in the shape of water, very prominently. And man, when that song played in a, in a, you know, oddly romantic moment in that movie, I knew every word and it took me back to, you know, to Memphisville and all those different things of thinking about music and and tone and grandparents and stuff like that. And yeah, I I don't know. I I can't, I can't see any plane without thinking, you know, of a B-17 and the roar of that, you know, um. A fun thing they do with with air shows here now that I live in Chicago in a big city. The annual air show is always in July and they always like intentionally like scream over Wrigley Field during a Cubs game and scare the shit out of all the players on the field because some F-18 comes, you know, hauling over the head and they're trying to play a baseball game and it always screws up the game and it's always hilarious. But um I remember one time a B-17 was there for the show and it came out for practice and that was buzzing out in you know the parks and the beaches and things like that and same thing, maybe it's not an F eighteen but just again the majesty of that sound is just unmistakable. It's awesome.
1: Yeah, they That's don't call cool. it they don't call it the flying fortress for nothing. I mean it legitimately is gigantic. If you've never actually seen one and I have as well, Don, it, it is a sight to behold. And there's a reason that they could only do one thing. <laughs> there's no maneuverability in that thing. Right. It's up, it's down and it's hopefully you can drop all of your load in order to land because it is not built to take turns and do all this stuff that planes these days do. It is a flying fortress of metal and hunks and it is, oh, they're just, they're gigantic and they're super scary and it really does show you like how insane it was for these guys to go up in this thing. Do either of you know I
0: know the Memphis bell was at Mud Island in Memphis. I'm assuming it's still there. I don't know if it's been
2: When I researched when I researched for this show and looked up some stuff, um it was in Memphis for a long time, but I uh the funding of keeping it in Memphis or whatever maintenance it took to kind of hang it there ran out and I believe it got absorbed. The Memphis bell itself got absorbed by the um, National Air Force Museum in Dayton Okay. Base there. I think okay. it's in there.
0: Well, I think I've added that to my bucket list to actually go uh, see that at some point. I, I got to go there, too. I missed I missed the opportunity when it was there, even after seeing the movie. I, I should have gone out and taken a look at it. In fact, I want to say that the shot initially when Modine's Dennis Dearborn is talking to the bell right before he gets up and, and almost touches the the front of it is the actual plane. Like, I think mm. they, they filmed that. In Memphis, I could be wrong. I just remember thinking that I read that somewhere. Obviously, not all the shots were there, but I think that initial shot where it's sitting there without anything behind it—I think it was actually uh, the the actual plane, which is pretty cool. Aaron, what about you? What was your connecting point?
1: Well, I'm going to be short and sweet about this because I know that I'll, I'll go ahead. I'm going to spoil it, but we have the same one, <laughs> and I want you to be able to speak on this since you've hinted that this is your favorite movie, and so it, it is not mine and but this is a moment that i felt very strongly about and it's brief it's really brief honestly during that time period when they're kind of waiting to get underway and to go on their mission we have the crew sitting around in the field and they come upon this journal of sergeant daly the irishman uh, who has poems right? And they kind of razz him, as all good military men would do if they found out that one of their own was into poetry. And he ends up standing up and reciting this W.B. Yeats poem called An Irish Airman Foresees His Death. And I mean, there really couldn't be a more aptly named poem. For me, I kind of got to go back to the point I made earlier about how even though I knew the ending of this movie or the ending of this historic event was that they all made it back. The sense the film had been building in me of fear and dread. This is the capper for it where I thought that somebody's not making it out of this thing. He recites his poem and he drops a few of the lines. I'm actually going to read it real quick, but he drops a few of the lines in the middle that are specifically relating to Ireland as a country. He says, he says, and I love this. I know that I shall meet my fate somewhere among the clouds above. Those that I fight, I do not hate. Those that I guard, I do not love. Nor law nor duty bade me fight, nor public men nor cheering crowds. A lonely impulse of delight drove to this tumult in the clouds. I balanced all, brought all to mind. The years to come seemed waste of breath, a waste of breath the years behind. In balance with this life, this death. is a fantastic, fantastic poem. The parts that stuck out to me most are the fact that, A, this is an Irish character who is an airman, who is talking about the fact that he truly does not believe he's coming back from this mission. That's the way I read it. And it was very powerful to me because of that. And the way that this poem comes into play at the end... When he is being jolted back uh by Val and his wannabe CPR, it, it pops back into play at that point, right? And I and I really like the that callback to it. But the lines that that just blew me that whole those that I fight, I do not hate, those that I guard, I do not love. For me, as a guy in the military, I related to that. Because I have never been super patriotic. <laughs> and Everyone that I know, when I tell them this, seems really shocked. People believe that because I was a career Navy guy that really advanced pretty highly and did great, I I somehow am just this big pro-U.S. patriotic person, but I'm not. My parents have a whole room dedicated to Americana in their house. It actually is weird and makes me uncomfortable. I don't fly American flags all over the place. I'm not anti-American by any stretch of the imagination. I just... It was a job to me. I wasn't serving in the Navy because I had this strong desire to serve my country. I was there because of many other reasons, and it was a job. And while I could also take pride in that, I really related and resonated with this statement that those that I fought against, I didn't hate. I watch movies all the time. And Patrick, I think I've talked to you about this, where I wonder about that. I wonder about these soldiers are killing other people and we're meant to see someone as a bad guy, quote unquote, as an enemy. That enemy is following orders given by somebody that they're following. Like the two men that are actually killing each other have no actual emotions toward each other. There's no reason for this animosity to exist. One is doing a thing that someone has told him to do and the other is doing a thing that someone has told him to do. And boom, they're, they've come together. And similarly, the those I guard, I do not love. He's up there. He's going on these missions. He's flying in this flying fortress, putting himself at risk. And he doesn't necessarily love all of these Americans back home. He doesn't know them. But he's doing a thing because he's gonna. it's what he has chosen to do. And he's going to do it to the best of his ability. And he does take pride in it. And so... I just thought that that was a fantastic poem and its inclusion in the movie and the way that it happened right before them going up on that final mission was, I thought, just a stellar, stellar stinger to like, it pulled me in in a way that I don't think anything else could have pulled me in right before we got up in the air. So that that's why it was my connecting point.
2: Well, well said, man. Well said. Yeah. yeah.
0: And it's interesting to read the poem because I have it pulled up here too. And to see, just like any biopic, what was taken out. Because without knowing the four lines that refer to his particular country and where his loyalties lie, I would not have gotten that same interpretation that you did. And I didn't. So when you read that without those four lines, what I saw and what I connected with the most is a guy who is sort of sitting in this in-between state of saying, you know what? I'm going to die and more than likely it's going to be in the air. But the fact is I'm sitting in this place in this moment where those that I fight, I do not hate and those that I guard, I do not love. I'm my own individual in this moment and that my life is elevated, not as like better or worse, but my life is elevated looking below at the enemy that I'm bombing and the crew that I'm protecting. And that I am an individual in this. And I think that the movie itself really articulates in a way because Danny isn't connected to anybody. Like anytime he's included in the conversation, he individualizes it. When we're talking about, you know, what's everybody going to do? And they're they're razzing Dennis about working for him in his furniture store. Or uh, Rascal says, I'm going to do anything but not work. And they're all kind of giving their... Dreams of what's going to happen. He's the realistic one. He's the guy who's very much thinking intrinsic or internally. He is he's self reflecting on the fact that he doesn't want to give himself that. He doesn't want to give himself the I don't know what's going to happen. He's not morbid about it, but it's like he's in this place of real tension where he's like I don't know what to what to celebrate. I don't know if I should embrace mentally and emotionally the fact that I'm going to die on this mission knowing that if I don't, the war is going to keep going on, even if my mission's over, or if I'm going to live past this and, and be able to celebrate. And so the way in which Eric Stoltz delivers that poem, he does it in a way where he's just like, this is my heart, guys. This is where I'm at. I don't know what to do with it, but all I can do is recite this through, uh, through this poem and why the, I mean, it's a great poem, as you mentioned, Aaron, and it, and it speaks to all that, but why there was an intentionality chosen to put Yeats's words in his mouth and him to realize that I, I don't quite know why that was. Maybe it was because he just like, that's how he does with fear in that he hides behind his writing, his, his internalization. And he uses the, the words of other people to, um, to articulate what he's feeling. I don't know, but it doesn't negate the fact that what I picked on was what he was feeling. No law nor duty bade me fight. No public man nor cheering crowds. My motivation was not because of these things that, as you mentioned, Aaron were patriotic or that I had a duty, a lonely impulse of delight drove to this tumult in the clouds. So there was, it all comes back to him and then he finishes that. I balanced all. I feel like this right here, that line Is the breath. It's like him saying, you know what? I've settled this. I've balanced all, brought all to mind. Everything before and everything after, the years to come seem wasted breath, a waste of breath the years behind, you know, forward and back, in balance with this life, this death. And I feel like those four lines were his way of saying through that poem, I'm content with whatever happens. I'm going, I'm choosing to be content. And it, I think it left a nice little coda for me because whether or not he died on that plane or they landed and he survived, I would have been satisfied with that outcome. Because to me, Danny, who all three of us have said we connect with in some way, settled with it in his heart through Yates that whatever happened was going to happen and he was going to be able to live with it or die with it.
2: I love the two differences you guys just had on that just taking two different reads out of that but still both poignant both solid It's can be well done you two man Woo! i'm sitting over here with the mic off just going man Woo! high five <laughs> that's a high five from the feeling film crew all right
0: <laughs> well that brings us to the end of this installment of feeling film be on the lookout for a couple of reviews coming during the week we have our midway review as well as last christmas these will be on our website as well as our social media channels as we mentioned before, voting for November donor pick is going on through the 10th of this month. So be sure to vote if you are part of the Patreon family or sign up to become one at patreon.com slash Next week's episode, we will be covering Midway on Veterans Day with Kevin Brackett from Real Spoiler. So you don't want to miss that. And last but not least, if you're enjoying the show, why not leave us a review and help encourage others to check it out as well. The best place to do that is on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, and it helps us a ton. So uh, thanks for that. Don, where can people find you on social media and around the web to keep this conversation going or inquire more about uh, what you're up to?
2: Uh, as usual, I am everymoviehasalesson.com. Um You can find, you can search that on Facebook and on Twitter. Uh, I've been writing a ton for uh, a website called 25YL, 25 Years Later Site. Um, it's something I've kind of started and fell into. And I've become a crazy prolific writer over there. I've been, um, it's a chance to kind of cover different things and do some more long form stuff where I've got some upcoming Mumblecore, musical and uh, dysfunctional family pieces on the way. Some of it's regurgitating old reviews I've done some of it's some new stuff along the way, but uh, find me there 25 YL is the place to search for. Um, and uh, it's busy ward season. Uh, I, I'm not going to get to see Midway tomorrow because I'm going to finally see the Irishman. So it's it's the Irishman. It's Honey Boy. It's um, Ford versus Ferrari this week. It's it's a nutty week and it just keeps on getting crazier with November and December. So um, I know I chime in in the feeling film group to um, keep an eye on what we learned this week. My usual weekly column or sometimes biweekly, but I do my best and uh, uh, that's the place to find me. And I can't look, I'm always looking forward to sharing my thoughts in the feeling film group because we have such great time there and uh, hope they find this episode as well. Excellent. Thank you, Don. And thank
0: you, Aaron, for another great conversation. And we will talk soon.
1: Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you.
0: We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way.
1: If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter at Film or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat.
0: And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in
1: any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive
0: and keep Film.